Hi, I'm Natalina, and you're listening to Asia is Not a Country. So on this show, I explore all the different experiences, the good, bad, ugly of being Asian, no matter where we are. You could be 100% Asian, a quarter Asian, 10%, you name it. Just know that there's no one way or type of Asian you have to be. You don't have to be the mathematician nerd. You don't have to be the good Asian housewife. You could be you no matter who or where you are and you don't have to always obey your parents. Because sometimes people will want to tell us how we should behave as Asians. Um, and in my case, I am Chindian. Most people don't know what that is, but to catch you up. So on my mom's side, my family's from China. And on my father's side, we're from South India, specifically Kerala. But both my parents were born and raised in Singapore. And now I'm here in Berlin and I get to talk to some really awesome folks about their experiences growing up as an Asian person. And some of them also have moved outside of Asia. So I want to talk to them about how the way they perceive themselves has changed over time. Today I'm talking to Tito, or as I call him, Jay-Z. I talked to him back in October of 2021 when he just moved back to Chengdu, China after six years in the U.S. Now the reason I wanted to chat with him is because he's done something that I've considered but would never do for the fear of failure. Which is to move back home, back to Singapore, after making this big move to Europe. You know, growing up in Asia, we're taught to look to the West as the true north of success. But, you know, what happens when we get to our true north and things aren't quite what we thought they would be? How do we reconcile fact with fiction and what brings us back home? That's exactly what I spoke to Jay-Z about. And here he is telling us about where he's from and what his journey has been. Um, I, I was born in Chengdu. Uh, which is the, uh, called the border town, located in the Sichuan province, which is then located in the southwest part of China, and it is the last province before Tibet. However, I never realized that this border identity, or I thought about when I was young, is just like, I want to get out of China and to see the world. I had the romanticized version, the ideal of the distant land. So wherever is far away from where I am now, regardless it's China or anywhere I'm living, it's romanticizing my mind. So at the age of 17, because I watched some foolish, but I still think well-made Korean drama uh, about hoteliers, so I decided to go to Singapore to be a hotelier. And then very quickly, I realized that uh, reality is very different from Korean drama and TV episodes. I decided to switch back to the government schools in Singapore. So I attended the secondary school, junior college, which is the equivalent of high school, sat um, through my uh, GCSE, O-levels and A-levels, and mm -hmm. did my university education in the National University of Singapore. And so that was about 10 years in total. And then I realized I'm once again romanticizing the distant land and um, getting sick of where I am again. So out of serendipitous reasons, I, I went, uh, went to America to, and then to um, do my education in graduate school in East Asian studies and Chinese literature. And then it's been six years. And now because of COVID, two months ago, I returned to my hometown in Chengdu, but this time not living the city, living the suburbs because the American life has accustomed me to suburbs. So now I'm moving to this suburb 
one hour drive away from Chengdu, which is close to uh, the Mount Qingcheng, which is the Taoist mountain famous for tourists. You mentioned something in, in your introduction that I just wanted to talk a bit more about. You said this border identity, uh, because I'm not so, I yeah. think, aware of this border identity between China and Tibet. Could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, so um, it's a really belated realization because growing up and just being Chinese, right? Then went to Singapore, I'm Chinese again. Whether it's China Chinese or ethnically Chinese, you know, I'm Chinese. But then, uh, and later I realized the, the, the different kinds of Chinesenesses in, in China, depending on which provinces you come from. If, if you're Cantonese speaking, that is a kind of Hong Kong Canto, that kind of style, which is dominant uh, in the overseas Chinese community or, or the Hokkien, you know, the Hakkas. These are the dominant culture that has been exported out of China. For us to try, it's a very funny existence on its own. It's always been a little bit distant from Shanghai and Beijing and Hong Kong. It has its own style and flair. People are very, you know, that kind of laid back mentality, which in recent years have attracted a lot of foreigners and suddenly those whole place has developed. But then in, in hindsight, half of it is, is the plain, is the Chengdu plain where the city is based and which is a very Han dominant area. But half, more than maybe at least half of the province, I feel, is in, located in the mountainous regions, which they are inhabited by Aboriginal or indigenous people belonging to the Ganzi Aba tribes. These people, they are situated at the... The, 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 the periphery of Chinese and the Tibetans, because Tibet has a center, which is Lhasa. But all of these Tibetans, or Chinese Tibetans, they, they come from the borderland of Sichuan and Lhasa. So they, they are like in the middle. And when I grew up in Chengdu, in this city, in that environment, I'm always very, uh, I'm not say surrounded day to day, but, you know, seeing Lamas or Tibetans or Chinese speaking Tibetans in, uh, in the city. Um, is is a norm. It's normal. How did you place yourself then as a Chinese person in Singapore? In Singapore, so I was called the, the the China man, and so for me, it's just yeah, I'm someone from China. That's it. And then because you know, we grew up with facetious jokes, and people call me funny names like the, the you know, it's this boy from China is the and and so for me, Singapore is like yeah, I'm I'm China Chinese, and that that's that's how I place myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, technically, Singaporeans would call China Chinese PRCs. Yes. Oh, yes. That's the word. PRC. It, it, it is. Yeah. PRCs. It's kind of derogatory to call someone like, oh, the, all these PRCs, you know, People's Rep Republic of China. <laughs> that, that's why like Singaporeans call them like they want to maybe dissociate from like Chinese China people yes. and like Singaporean Chinese because they're second, third, maybe even fourth generation um, Chinese, uh, and they want to disassociate themselves because they feel like the, the better Chinese, the more westernized Chinese, because, just because of how uh, I think Singapore has developed over the, the last, I don't know, five, five decades, for example. Yeah, the Anglo-Chinese the Anglo -Chinese identity is it's something, you know, in Singapore, the, I think these things felt that the Singaporean Chinese flavor is more authentic because we did not go through the political upheavals of China in the last century, such as the infamous Cultural Revolution. So we have obtained all the gist of the real Chinese culture. And sometimes, you know, I have friends telling me, it's like, oh, the people from Hong, 
not from uh, Fujian or the Canton area. Sometimes they've forgotten about their rituals because, you know, many things have been destroyed. They have to come down to us to learn how to do it, because, uh, which there is a large degree of truth because the overseas Chinese community in Malaysia and Singapore, I'm not saying they, have, they don't have their own political problems, but, you know, they did have a much better preservation of the so-called authentic Chinese culture. But this is on the one hand. And then on the other hand, because Singapore is the street settlement of the overseas British identity. And so it's like, oh, we're the Anglo-Chinese and we, we're very atas, which just means for posh. It's like we've got the best of the Chinese and the Britishness. So anyway. <laughs> no, but I think it's interesting that you would say that. Like for me, and maybe because I'm only half Chinese, I feel very very disconnected from my Chinese culture, other than, you know, celebrating Chinese New Year, my grandma, like my Mandarin is really bad. You know, I, I never spoke good Mandarin. I, well, I did in primary school, you know, my first two years of primary school, I did really well for Mandarin, like almost full marks. And then after that, I think this idea of like speaking bad Mandarin equals being cool. Yes. That kind of just sunk, sunk into my head. Um, and then when I was in junior college, I failed my A-level Chinese in the first year and I was forced to take basic Chinese, CLB, and then you become like a CLB kid who can't speak Chinese. You're like the worst of the worst Chinese speaker, you know, in school. But no shame, right? Actually, it's a plus. It's, it's like... No, it's a shame now. It's a, it's, to be honest, I, I'm very, I'm very ashamed of the fact that I can't speak, man. It I'm, makes me really sad. I'm glad that you realized it. <laughs> but, but, but just joking. And, but, you know, back then you did touch upon a very interesting point, um, an insufficiency in some kind of mother tongue or language ability actually situates you on the higher strata of the social echelon of hierarchy. I don't know where does that come from. There's something very, very troublesomely, you know, not even post-colonial, there's something very colonial about it. So the question is to be raised, is Singapore ever post-colonial? I don't, anyway. No, I mean, we, we have the, the statue of our colonial master in the middle of the city, right? We celebrate our colonial history. But now I feel like I'm getting off, off <laughs> totally off track. Yeah. Maybe just to, to bring us back to, to you, Jay-Z, and to your experience in, in Singapore, because you pursued your bachelor's in the National University of Singapore, which is where we also met. And you went to, to Germany for your exchange semester. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that you identify as a Europhile. <laughs> Were you always a Europhile? And, and where does that come from? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Let me think about it. I think I have, I'm just, you know, naturally attracted to places with, uh, oh gosh, what I'm going to say is not going to be very... <laughs> not, not saying not nice, so I was saying not very academic. So anyway, I'm just going to say it. It's just, I'm, I think I'm attracted to this rich cultural, you know, I don't sediment, or I don't know how to call it. You know, for me, it's like, how is it possible that Europe with this small piece of land has such density of cultures and, and this culture, although it's, it's hegemonic and, and colonial in many instances, has proliferated and, and grew, you know, in different parts of the world. Um, I think I'm just attracted to that. Then, yeah. And why specifically Europe? Because you could say that India, for example, has the same richness, right? Or there are Asian countries that have that same richness or Middle, e Middle Eastern countries that have it. Why are you particularly a Europhile? Is it because you spent time in Germany? Um, at the very beginning, I think it's just the idea of the West. You know, the idea of the West being for a China Chinese person 
is that carries a lot of burdens and historical meanings in it. You leave China and you go to the West and because the West is where the best and the brightest are and the, the, the technology is, you go there and learn everything. I think back then it had severe inferiority syndrome and my gaze was not even in Asia. Of course, now my gaze is, is in Asia, but and the gaze was always the West. Um, I might be a classist deep down somewhere, or I am. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, you, why not go to America or Australia until, until now? I still don't understand why I'm not that into these two countries. But for me, it's the origin, the myth of the origin. Where does that West come from? Is, is Europe, is, is Greece. And that's from where, because I have the same feeling as well. You know, if I go to like Austria and I go to a small little like city and I'm like in the city center area and I hear music, I feel like, oh, I'm in this like European zone that I see as a kid or as a teenager, right? That's like, for me, that's where it comes from. Okay. This is not too like to be too humble brag or how do you call that? I was, when I was in Singapore already, I was very drawn to intellectuals, right? The European intellectuals and European thinkers. So for me, it's like, and look at and uh, the Beauvoir, I was like, oh, wow. And then I read the writings of Marguerite Duras and I was like, wow, amazing. Those, those writings gave me a version of Europe. And when I went to Paris and, and or Berlin to look for those um, places like Christopher Isherwood, you know, like the Marguerite Duras and all of this. And I found these places and they were exactly to me like how it was described in the, in the books. You've mentioned already that you're a Europhile and America was never um, a country that you were interested in. So then why did you decide to, to move to the U.S.? Um, was it more for Harvard? What did Harvard symbolize for you? Oh, God. Um, that, I... What do I say? I I was an accident. I mean, going to America, like so many Chinese has has have done so, and it's it's a pure accident, you know. Even while I was in Singapore, I'm always closer with my Asian and European friends, and I hardly had any American friends. Um, then you know, life always takes you to the direction that maybe you don't want, because I received an offer letter with full scholarship from Harvard University to pursue my ma uh, master's degree over there. And then I re reapplied and got into the PhD program. So all should be good. Yeah. <laughs> but because um, I just remember having this conversation with you when you were making this decision to move to the US and I was like, oh, but you love Germany so much. You speak the language, you enjoyed your time in, in Heidelberg, if I'm not wrong. Mm -hmm. um, why why the US? Because you were never interested in it and you're like, I, I, I want that Ivy League certificate. Yes. So fruitful so that way now? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I think I'm a social climber, not that. I'm just ambitious, you know, deep down there. The Ivy League branding is, mm, I think, like all immigrants in living in a foreign country, you want to prove yourself. You want to be strong and better and excel, basically. Um, and I worked really hard to get into the National University of Singapore, but I felt, um, I felt, um, I could have done better, you know, because my the group of friends that I, I grew up with, I still maintain good relationship with until now. They all went to like Oxbridge, you know, Ivy League schools. And I'm like stuck with 
uh, NUS, you know, I'm not saying NUS, which is the acronym International University of Singapore. I'm not saying NUS is, is bad, but it's just like, I felt I could have done better. I remember there was a time that when the film Kill Your Darlings star, star, uh, starring Daniel Radcliffe um, on the subject of the Beat Generation was um, showing in Singapore cinema and I went to watch it. And there was a moment when um, I forgot about the, the poet that uh, Radcliffe was playing. He received finally the, uh, how do you call that, offer letter, you know, the admission letter from Brown. At that moment, how ecstatic he was. And then I was sitting there in the cinema and then looked at that scene and I was like, I, that could have been me. You know, that was, <laughs> oh my God, that sounds, um, yeah. So <laughs> I was like, I want that, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I think that that's probably makes sense. I think also growing up in Singapore, for me, people were always saying like, Oh, people who go to the UK to study or to the US, and those are the smart ones, right? Oh, yeah. the ones who who's made it. So I, I don't totally understand. Yeah. But coming back to you, Jay-Z, what were some of the biggest culture shocks when you moved to the US and you were in Boston as well? So how is that very different from the two places or three places you've lived in before? Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, the first time ever I experienced culture shock, I think. I didn't expect that in the US. Um, and I was already almost 30, late 20s and almost 30. You know, I had really difficult time adjusting to the, uh, the, the American culture. Um, First of all, I have to qualify what I'm going to say by saying that uh, in Singapore, I think the transition was smooth because I'm ethnically Chinese. I can blend in, I can hide, you know, like I just have to change my accent. As soon as I've adopted the, the Singaporean accent and went into the, um, the Singaporean local schools, I feel I'm included and accepted immediately. In Germany, mm, because I think my university education that prepared me for the German culture and how people behave. Um, and also the, the understanding of the language and, and plus that my, I only lived there in short terms, not for years. So there was no culture shock because I was also hanging out with either exchange students or, or German students who have overseas living experience. Then, then there's America. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a Boston, right? Then the, and before I went to Boston, everyone tell me, oh, Boston's fine. You know, it's the most European city in, in, in the States. And then I arrived in, in Boston. I look around, it's like, no, this is not European at all. You know, it's like, I can't find sidewalks. You know, where, where, where do I walk? And it's the number from their perspective is that Boston is full of sidewalks already. It's not like New York. You know, every time I'm in New York, I'm so comfortable. You know, even New England area, people are known for a little bit of, how do I call that, maybe reserved or distant, you know, aloof to, to each other. I was much freer to express myself in, in big cities like Berlin and some other parts of Germany rather than Boston and, um, and Cambridge, Massachusetts, which should be, you know, international as well. I cannot generalize, but I have to say the American culture that I have experienced has told me that there is a very conformist substrata there. It's, I, I'm not getting the photo of it, but it's just very different. It's, it can be very conformist in, in its actuality while being very liberal in its ideas. So that's some of the biggest culture shock I've had. And then on top of that, it's, it's the race issue that we can talk about in later. 
Mm-hmm. But maybe you can expand on that. What do you mean by like the race issue? Being a Chinese person, um, how how did that feel moving to the U.S. and, and in Boston? While I was in Germany, I felt my Chineseness was a bonus because I'm foreign, or if I may use that word, exotic, and coming from a land that has its own long culture. So people were interested in my culture. You know, they asked me about my, my life. Also, of course, there are foolish things that they've said or assumptions that I've made, but, but at least I'm a subject of interest because of my, my color or my ethnic background or where I'm from. Um, however, when in America, first of all, is um, um, I suspect because of the, the political tension between these two countries and it got worse and worse, you know, while I was there. And because I basically lived through the Trump era, almost to, to the extent when COVID happened, it's, it's, it's sheer hostility. Like your, your Chinese-ness, it's like, you know, a kind of, not a bonus. Like, I'm not interested in your culture and you're not welcome here and, you know, and get out. That, that, that's the, 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 the message that I'm getting. Mm-hmm. Do you feel comfortable talking a bit more about that? Like how... How was that message translated to you? How do you feel that? Um... Um, sure. Um, let me give the examples. I think it's always sensitive to talk about these things, but uh, you observe the outside of the college life, outside of the university, and uh, you look at normal people. Um, you know, I have to say that, you know, my observation might be totally, you know, opinionated. It might not be the version that everybody has to agree, but at least I'm speaking from what I have observed and the degree of truth that I believe in. Is, is, you see, you know, white students with white students, African-American students with African-American students and Asian students with Asian-American students and the international students in with the international students. So I was like very puzzled by this because that was not how I, I, I experienced life in Singapore and Germany. And second, it's, it's not the melting pot that I was expecting, you know, the American dream, the melting pot. And then people told me actually, um, um, it's not a melting pot, it's a salad. It's only a very thin layer of dressings that on top of it, you, it seems everything has been jumped together, but actually below it's not tossed. Um, and then mm, there is the realization that, you know, before other immigrant, immigrant cultures have been told by Chinese parents that if you go to a country, you learn that culture and you, you try to integrate. That's what I've been taught in Singapore and China and in, I think in Germany, it's also expected, right? But then America is, is, is I've, eventually I've realized the message is like, you live in your own safe community and bubbles and don't bother trying to integrate. Because they're, you know, don't bother. Uh, don't bother means um, means you you are not able to integrate, or maybe you're not welcome to integrate, and and to a certain extent. And then, and then the second thing is more concrete example is of course um COVID outbreak, and you know, well, it's just horrible. There was um so much you know spitting on any vaguely Chinese like person. Um, spitting at them at Boston or in, in, in around Cambridge area and I have friends uh, who was Chinese himself but has a Korean wife they wore masks they put on masks immediately of, upon hearing the news and walking on campus 
And there are people shouting at them just because they wore masks and say, why are you wearing masks? This is not China. There was a moment I bought body camera and don't dare to go out to even go to the supermarket. I don't dare even to go on jogging. Uh, but the good thing is I have really nice American and Canadian roommates with me. So they are, they are white, they're Caucasians, and they are really, you know, nice. And, and, and I put, I say, you guys are my white shield. Come and protect me and bring me out. So, and those are, you know, also they are nice people in hard times like this. And what did your uh, American or Canadian flatmates, how did they feel about that experience? How did they feel about being used as a, and as you put it, like a white shield? Um, we didn't talk about that, but there's, I think it's just the, the person who, who accompanied me out, he's just really kind person by nature. And he's also, he's also, he does study, study American history and it's, um, effect on the indigenous communities. So he's very, very aware of this. And he's also very viscerally affected by, you know, this racism in his own country. And also it feels almost apologetic to this. Um, so I, w I said there, my wife showed it in a very joking manner, in a facetious manner. Um, not, of course, I don't use them as my tool, you know. Um, I don't, yeah. And, um, I mean, all of this obviously happened during the, the pandemic. And I'm wondering then, what was the tipping point for you to move back to China? Because you moved in July, if, I think it was July of 2021. To me, it seemed very abrupt. We, we talked maybe a month or two before and you suddenly were like, yeah, I'm, I'm moving back to China. I'm already packed. And I, I think I was also just a bit shocked because... I figured you would always stay in, in Harvard, in the U.S., um, until you were done with, with your PhD. Um, yes, sir, I think enough is enough. Although I'm, I'm very happy with my departments, with my colleagues, and with very grateful to the Harvard education, and also happy with Harvard as institutions. But I do not like living in a place where I was living for the past six years, and I never felt that I was integrated as part of the social fabric to the extent that it's affecting me negatively on my creative writing and things like that. So I always knew I'm an outsider, that this is not where I want to be. And until COVID, for that whole year, my families were afraid of me coming home because uh, they're afraid of me contracting the disease on the slide back. So I just had to stay put. And then I suffered through that whole horrible year when things are gradually opening up. And I said, okay, if there's a point to be make or to, to, to prove to myself that I can endure a harsh environment, living in a harsh environment like that. And then the second question I'm asking myself is, does this have to be um, the way it is for the past, for the next few years? And do I have to live in, in such an optimal or, you know, unhappy situation uh, just so that I can prove a point to myself or to the others. And then I said, no, right. And then there was the incidents that I actually got COVID. I think that was one of the, the two straws that broke the camel's back. And then after I recovered, thank God, you know, my symptom was not uh, severe. I recovered. And then I had, I, I had a bad fall and 
in February and March, which uh, I have to drive my, th at that point, I just, uh, there's nobody, there's no support network around me and all my best friends, they have already left, you know, because foreign students. And I have to drive myself to the, the emergency room and drive myself back. And thank God it didn't broke my bones. But I think that four is the second straw that, uh, that broke the camera's back. And then also that, like, you know, enough is enough. Make a decision and, 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 and go ahead with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so, so, so sorry to hear that um, the last year has been, been so tough. Um, I think hearing you say it again, like putting everything together, it's, it also must have taken um, a toll on you mentally as well. But what you were saying about proving yourself, it reminds me of this thing my mother used to say is like, it's so cool, Emma. Like, have you eaten bitterness? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, you relate to that as well. So you've proven yourself by, by um, you know, living in the U.S. for the last six years in the Trump era in, in, in COVID times. And I guess at some point you've eaten enough bitterness and you're like, I'm done. I, I can leave now. I've proven to myself and maybe to also your family and the people around you that you've, you've endured enough. Man, it resonate. Yeah, maybe, or maybe definitely there's that, or maybe it's just, I'm not fit for America. You know, America is a country that naturally selects certain kind of people. You know, if I'm not that kind of person that this country is looking for, maybe I'm just not good enough to be there. But I think I've come to terms with what I, what I want. So it's all about what you figure out what you really are and what you really want in life and make a decision based on that, but not to be hijacked or blackmailed by all of this um, stereotypes about uh, you have to eat enough bitterness in order to prove yourself and you have mm -hmm. to, if you can stay in the country, then that means you've, you've succeeded as an immigrant. If you come back, you are a failure. Um, well, I think times are very different. We're not living you know, in like 20, 30 years ago, maybe even longer. And times are changing, the, the political tides and economic strength are changing. It's a reshuffle of the world power. Maybe could you talk a bit more about um, this going home as a, as a failure? Like where, where does that come from? Because I'm not sure if everyone would understand that um, sentiment. I think it's from the Asian inferiority complex. My parents always had the idea of that if you migrate to uh, immigrate to a foreign land, you have to, if that land is perceived to be better than China, such as Singapore, Germany, or the UN, United States, you have to prove yourself that you're capable by staying there and you know, sink your roots down. Don't come back. If you come back, you're a failure. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of, it's like the economic factor in there as well. There's money involved. There are dreams of, um, I guess, carrying out your parents' dreams and wishes as well involved in that, that debate or that, that struggle. Um, and I'm wondering for you, um, Jay-Z, as you've lived in America for six years and also your time in Singapore and Germany, has your relationship with China changed? Have you seen it in a different light, a different way? Um, yes, definitely has changed a lot. As a new immigrant in the foreign land, and my first, the very first thing I want to do is shed all my Chineseness away. Because back then, when I was 17, 18, 19, or early 20s, all the way to the late 20s, maybe, China was a burden. Because of the international stereotypes of Chinese, you know, China Chinese, 
And because of the, of the, of the history, China was abandoned. So for me to successfully transform myself as international or cosmopolitan Chinese or Singaporean, I have to sever all ties with China. And what does that mean? That means that I'm always, while living in Singapore or Germany, overly critical about Chinese culture, the Chinese government. So everything that you mentioned about China is bad, 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 bad. And I, and even if you use Singapore, even if I'm talking to my Singaporean friend, if you are a little bit pro-China, I will be more anti-China than you in order to prove that I am not uh, the same as the rest of the Chinese who are still living in China. So having lived about 15, 16 years overseas already in this moment, so I think I've come to terms with my heritage. Especially after America, you realize it's all pros and cons. There is no one Chinese. It's not that China is better than the States or that the States is better than China. It's like they have their own strengths and weaknesses and you've got to make your decision. So now um, I've, I've become more acceptant, is that the word, to uh, or maybe more um, lenient about the flaws of, the, of my motherland. And when I see something I'm not happy about, instead of complaining, and I start to think along the way that, okay, how, then how, what, either accept it or change it. Um, if it's beyond the scope of my personal uh, impact or, or beyond the, my ability to change it, then I accept it as, as what it is. Especially during the Trump era in, in in America, I become, I, to, I can't say defensive because I, I will not defend uh, the country based on political reasons, you know, uh, but I become to tone down my criticisms against China and, and I come to terms with the other issues. But now I'm, 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 I've returned back to uh, my hometown. In this region, I see the development, which is amazing, especially infrastructure development, but also see the environmental damages and all, a lot of structural flaws that it's, it's existing um, in this area. Um, I becoming more and more critical again. So I don't know why. Yeah, this is just you. I'm always all that oscillating between these two you know, ends. You see. Um, and, and maybe what does China represent for you now that it did not before? Um, before it was just, there's nothing to represent. I never realized that China was so special, whether you, <laughs> whether it poses a problem to the world order or it's, it's, you know, it's like, I was like, wow, I didn't know China was so important and so special. I don't want to be a champion of Chinese or China exceptionalism. That, that's not the way to do it because the, I think that's the American way to go. That there's American exceptionalism, right? So I don't want to use that and put it on China and say there's or how special it is China. But I feel like there is some cultural or civilizational differences that or historic, due to historical and political differences that we have to work on in order to, you know, to see where, how, what's the relationship between China and the world. That's what I'm most concerned about. These cultural and civilizational differences are real. And for people from these countries, we live within that tension and it might influence the way we see and experience the world. 
and especially how people perceive us. Listening to Jay-Z's story, I'm reminded of my aunt. Before I made the big move to Germany, she told me, between a lot of crying, that I should never be ashamed of coming back home. She said, there's always going to be a place for you here. It was a really good reminder for me that if I decide to move back to Singapore, it doesn't and shouldn't be seen as a failure. I think in Asian cultures, and especially in Chinese culture, coming home can sometimes be seen as a sort of failure, like we're throwing in the towel and we don't want to lose face. We want to prove that we've eaten the bitterness as a badge of honor. But what's so great about Tito is that he has confidence in who he is and what he needs, which is to be home and to take comfort in knowing that this is where I am right now. Thank you for listening to Asia's Not a Country. Make sure to follow the show wherever you listen. Leave a review because that really helps us. You can also follow us on Instagram at asiasnotacountry.podcast. Share this with your friends, colleagues, and maybe even in your family WhatsApp group. This episode is produced and hosted by me, Nathalina Pereira, and my co-producer is Jasmine Biomi. Mixing and sound design by Dominic Etchley. Music, Epidemic Sound. <laughs>